You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to the Batuta Advocate radio show here on Desert Rock FM, coming to you live from the Koala Mattress Studios in downtown Batuta. My name is Errol Parker. Yes, hello, and thank you for joining us today. We've got a big-name guest uh, from the podcast world and journalism world, I guess you could say, stopping in today, don't we? Yes, we certainly do, Clancy. We have Headley Thomas in the studios today. He's the man behind the Teacher's Pet podcast, a sensation that has taken the podcasting world by storm. It certainly has. It's, uh, it's gotten over 14 million downloads. Now, I think that would be north of that, closer to 19 million. Yeah, I think you're right. And, uh, and is the first Australian podcast to hit number one over in the US. Yeah, it was. He's, uh, he's here with us in the Diamond Tanner Shire today to talk more about this smash hit and about journalism and his career more generally. It's kind of uh, it's always good to look at the uh, person behind these kind of things. We know everything there is to know about you know the Dawson family uh, from the Teacher's Pet podcast. Uh, but let's uh, let's talk to Headley Thomas, uh, the man that brought us it. And just quickly before we get into this chat with Headley, a quick reminder that this November we are packing our bags and heading off around the country on the Batuta Advocate Roadshow. Yes, that's right. So in this show, Errol and I will be taking you behind the scenes of the Batuta Advocate, lifting the lid on some of the biggest stories we've penned and explain how we got access to some of the most powerful, short-lived Political dynasties in this country. That's right. Clancy will be starting off in Townsville at the Civic on November the 3rd before hitting the Entertainment Centre in Darwin the next night on the 4th. Uh, and then after that, we're at the Empire Theatre in Toowoomba on the 6th. There's 10 other shows around the country before we wind up at the Opera House on the 1st of December, just in time to start getting ready for a family holiday down the sunny coast, I reckon. So book your tickets now from www.batutaadvocate.com forward slash roadshow or head to the show notes on this episode. Now we won't keep Headley waiting any longer. Let's get into this week's show. Well, here we are with Headley Thomas, uh, Australian investigative journalist, um, the researcher and reporter and voice behind the new uh, podcast, Teacher's Pet. Uh, First Aussie podcast to go number one in the US, 10 million downloads. Hedley, did you think you were going to get this much of a following behind you, the story that you've been following? No, I was worried it was going to be a big fail. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to tell the story over you know a number of episodes, but uh, I didn't know how to make a podcast. Yeah. And uh, when I first wrote the script for it, I think it was pretty ordinary. Um, and then I think just you know people started realising there was a terrible injustice at the heart of the story and maybe they were interested also in hearing, you know, um, behind the scenes what happens when a journo, you know, gets um, transfixed in a a yarn and starts following it and talks to all sorts of people connected to it and uh, we had some, you know, really good material but we had, I think... um, the authenticity of members of Lynn Dawson's family and, you know, you could identify with the, them you know, and their loss and people had lots of questions and we tried to answer as many as possible and a series that was, you know, maybe going to be six or eight episodes ended up becoming 14 and, 
Yeah, it was 10 million downloads a while back, but um, I think it's 17 now. And, right. Yeah. yeah. So just for the for the nine people in this country who who haven't heard it, what's the teacher's pet about? Yeah, it revolves around a mum called Lynn Dawson, who was 33 when she disappeared from her home up at Bayview on Sydney's northern beaches. She was a mother of two little girls, age four and two, and she was married to Chris Dawson, and he's an identical twin. Uh, his brother Paul Dawson and Chris played uh, first grade rugby league for the Newtown Jets through the 70s. Um, they were pin-up footballers for eastern suburbs before then in, in rugby union and they modelled and they were school teachers yeah. and really popular charismatic guys um, in the high schools on the northern beaches. You know, they were heartthrobs um, and they were also um, quite predatory with schoolgirls. They had that creepy twins thing going on as well. Like, yeah. Know, identical. Well, that, and that was one of the features of this story. They were exceptionally close. Yeah. Uh, people who talked to me about um, Chris and Paul, who got to know them pretty well, played football with them, lived next door to them, said, look, they'd known lots of twins, but they'd never known twins like Chris and Paul in terms of the closeness of their relationship. Yeah. And it was that close that they actually uh, enjoyed having uh, sex with with a you know with a female together. Together, mm-hmm. yeah. Which you know, we, which imagine, is exceptionally close. Well, having yeah. having sex with someone with your sibling, you you know, you, yeah. is weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then and and that's just kind of scraping the surface on these guys, really, isn't it? It's just yeah. The, the more you go into this story. Um, yeah, the more the more you find out, and and and, and more uh, you realise that they they were capable of. Now, there's so many elements to this story that actually appeal to um, you know a wider audience, and it's quite nostalgic when you think about that puberty blues era. You know, with the heartthrob teachers, everyone's living on the beach, and then there's the rugby league element of you know back in New South Wales rugby league. D- did you find that? Um, you know, there were a lot of. There's a little bit of glory days about these, yeah. these characters. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, it was a trip down memory lane for a yeah. lot of people, um, me included. I I'm 51. I went to Gold Coast High School, and you know, in 1984, I finished Year 12. Um, in 1982, you know, Lynn Dawson suddenly vanished, and so for a lot of people, being taken back to you know um, their school days is is really nostalgic and 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 interesting but it also coincided with you know events that um in australian history were amazing and during the um the investigation research phases for the teacher's pet and when i was putting together um one episode in particular which dealt with lynn dawson's final seven days before you know i believe she was murdered in her home at bayview and uh, you know, I was looking for events that were occurring around that time, and you know, in addition to you know that famous um, test with the Windies, mm-hmm. um, you know, you also had um, the Azaria Chamberlain case, yeah, and, right. and I heard that grab again with Lindy Chamberlain saying, you know, a dingo took my baby, and yeah. I hadn't heard it for years, and you know, I really think that when you hear that and when you haven't heard it for ages, it's one of those those comments, those grabs that, you know, is um, 
Yeah, it can be pretty moving, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, particularly seeing what ended up happening with that mm. whole thing, because I guess that grab when it first came into everyone's, uh, you know, um, peripheral was a bit of a joke, and then we saw more and more come yeah. out of that whole thing. Uh, do you find that might have been a bit similar with this fan, with the Dawsons? Do you feel like there was a lot of uh, dismissiveness at the start? Uh, yeah, I think it's sort of uh, actually kind of in reverse in that with the Lindy Chamberlain case, many Australians rushed to judge and condemn her mm-hmm. and I think believe that you know she was the murderer of her daughter, her baby girl, and her appearance and you know her religiousness and and other things no doubt influenced that whereas i th- i think when lynn disappeared uh chris dawson uh should have been suspected of yeah. foul play uh but um he was you know in amongst a lot of his friends it seems anyway um, um pitied yeah you know as if his wife had just run away and left her kids and yeah. and um he had good police mates, and they looked after him. Yeah. They played footy with him. Um, so he had a he had a he had a completely different look. He wasn't a, he wasn't some spiritual hippie roaming around all the room. He was he was just a stand up ex league player from the beaches, right? Yeah, well, up up to a point. I mean, he he was a um, you know role model for many people, but uh, he had been having an affair with one of his uh, students from Cromer High School for the previous 14 months leading up to when his wife just suddenly vanished and then when she disappeared uh he moved that schoolgirl. he fetched her from southwest rocks where she was having like a schoolies holiday camping trip with friends her own age drove up there and brought her back and she was living in the house you know sleeping in lynn's bed within you know two days of what two coroners believe was lynn's murder yeah so you, you feel, do you feel like at the time there were people thinking it's it's a bit funny the way he... Were people thinking about that? Were people even talking about it? And did they even know about his relationship with these girls? Or was that just part of the culture? Yeah, this is the weird thing. So many people have told me mm. that... Um, you know, people on the Northern Beaches, that they did suspect wrongdoing. And you know, former students of Cromer High who... You know, who knew Mr. Dawson as the sports teacher, who knew Joanne as his girlfriend, they said that, you know, oh, well, um, Mrs. Dawson's under the pool. She was murdered and she's buried under the swimming pool. Um, and, you know, Lynn's friends also suspected wrongdoing. But unfortunately, uh, the police didn't pursue, you know, obvious kind of possible possible leads they didn't go and knock on neighbors doors they didn't follow up with lynn's friends you know at her workplace and lynn's family lynn's um brother uh, greg and another brother phil and sister pat they lived in other parts of the state and lynn's mother uh helena she lived down at clovelly and they weren't talking to Lynn's friends on the northern beaches. So there wasn't information sharing. I mean, these days with yeah. Facebook and yeah. mobile phone, yeah, you'd know in a heartbeat, yeah. you know, that there was something up with this. But back then, um, you know, we're, we're talking sort of, you know, before people even were using mobile phones. Yeah, picnics, really, wasn't it? Yeah, That's you catch yeah, up. yeah. yeah. One would think you've kind of spent your lifetime on this. I imagine you've spent a lot of time on this. What was it like? 
what's it like dealing with the ex rugby league community from from that era, particularly the pre-professional kind of everyone either became a cop or a teacher, yeah. a pub owner or a pokey rep. Is there a bit of a brotherhood when you when you're dealing with this kind of stuff there? Yeah, yeah, there there is. Um, I uh, I was really lucky in that um, I had some good um, friends who were able to help me, you know, get contact numbers for people like Paul Broughton. Um, and, you know, I, I played a bit of rugby league, not very well, you know, on, on the Gold Coast. And my sister, Rebecca, she ended up um, becoming chair of the Gold Coast Titans and right. now is like a co-owner of that team. And yeah. so right. she was able to, you know, give me a bit of a steer. And I talked to people like Maddie Johns about the case and and uh, Gordon Tallis. And yeah. they were fascinated and they were able to sort of, you know, suggest different people I might talk to for background and um, and then bit of a telegraph within them yeah, yeah yeah it was great and and everyone remembers the Dawson twins from the 70s when they you know played for Newtown very and blonde yeah yeah they were, and they were you know very handy players um, I'm not a sort of rugby league tragic in that I couldn't tell you, you know, yeah. who's who on the ladder and you know how that's all going but I, you know I guess I bluffed my way through that part yeah. of it and I think a lot of people along the way during the investigations and, and the interviews, you know, they saw an opportunity uh, so many years after the fact to solve a case that clearly had troubled them for some time. I haven't heard from anybody throughout this uh, past 10 months who's said to me, you've really stitched up mm. an innocent man here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there have been so many hundreds and hundreds of phone calls and emails and contacts and Facebook messages from people offering information. And I'm not suggesting that that is, you know, some sort of black and white barometer of of the righteousness or, yeah. you know, the uh, likely uh, guilt, in my view, of yeah. Chris Dawson. But um, I think it's really interesting that he has taught, you know, no doubt thousands of teenagers um, he's played football with hundreds of blokes, yeah. you know, where they've really had to. There's got to be a few people bond that together. A good egg, yeah, yeah. No one has said, "Mate, that's outrageous." He would never have done that. Yeah, yeah. You know? Not like you know, so, so many other crimes. Yeah, um, yeah. that kind of happen. So, what have people been saying? You know, um, you've had this this investigation come out. It's been all in the public, mm-hmm. um, and people have been writing to you. Have they been? offering up anything significant to the point where you know there could be a reopening of the investigation yeah they have offered a lot of new information um new witnesses who didn't go forward didn't contact police over the years didn't talk to you know the two coroners who ran the inquests in 2001 and 2003 you know they've come forward with individually important pieces of evidence one of the more important witnesses to come forward was a woman called Beverly Staniforth and she was at Cromer High and she knew Joanne and and she was good friends with Lynn and Chris Dawson because she had been babysitting in their home at Bayview and got to know the girls well and was really fond of Chris liked him Mm. a lot Saw him as a, a good man who, you know, provided for his family and easy to get along with. And that's another thing a lot of the students do say. The boundaries between Chris and Paul Dawson and the students were really significantly broken down. They wanted to be 
friends rather than you know having that kind of yeah, those position yeah, of authority. Cool teachers, yeah. yeah, yeah, they were cool teachers. So Beverly saw uh, what she described as really rough treatment by Chris of Lynn, and that was significant because so many other oh, domestic uh, domestically domestic, at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, um, rough shoving that made her cry, sort of pushed her into a doorway and another time whipped her with a towel and, you know, across her back and um, just in a, in a flash of anger. And and so she she came forward and she was crying when she was describing that um, because she felt guilty that she hadn't raised it earlier, um, hadn't pressed it, although she'd, she said she'd contacted Crime Stoppers, but they didn't call her back. Um and uh, she also felt some guilt that she didn't prevent events, even though she couldn't have. She was a teenager, but, you know, that was all playing on her mind. So she was she was significant. There have been um, a number of others who have led me into areas where, you know, we've been able to find fresh documentation that was really, um, I think, you know, a tipping point in this whole case. Yeah. And one of these key documents was a, a handwritten statement that Chris wrote to the police in August 1982, seven months after Lynn disappeared. And in that statement, Chris lies about, you know, some really fundamental facts. He, you know, just sort of airbrushes out of existence the the fact that he was having an intense sexual relationship with Joanne Curtis. And he says that his wife, you know, was distressed and they were having problems in their marriage because, you know, she was spending a bit of money on her bank card. And he, you know, lies about the fact that he went to Queensland a couple of days before Christmas, ostensibly to start a new life with Joanne. They, they didn't work out. They turned back and Linda disappeared a fortnight later. But the omission of those key facts, when he's trying to tell police, give them information, supposedly that'll help them find Lynn, you know, is very bad for his credibility in the event of a prosecution. It's known as a consciousness of guilt. Yep. He does. A prosecutor would argue that he lied because he knew that if he had told the truth, they would take a closer interest in what had happened and possibly charge him with murder. So that was a document that had not been known to the, the DPP after the first two inquests. Uh, wasn't known to earlier police investigations and you know, just through a bit of luck and design flushed it out of state archives where it had been sitting with uh, an investigation file that the ombudsman the state ombudsman had possession of when one of Lynn's friends complained in 985 that the cops weren't taking the case seriously right. yeah mm. so has there been any renewed interest from the authorities yeah there's significant interest the police certainly want to charge Chris Dawson with murder. You know, the police hopelessly botched this case through the 80s, and I think... You don't think there was a conspiracy at all? Do you think it was just... Uh, do you think it might have just been the one that slipped through through incompetence? Or? Yeah, I'm... I think it was certainly gross incompetence, but uh, I think given some of the facts of this case... Um, and then the the um, the complaint that one of Lynn's friends put in in writing to the state ombudsman, accusing the police of not doing their jobs properly, and they still didn't do their jobs properly. I think that you know it's possible that it was you know sinister, that it was more than incompetence, um, but it's really difficult to to prove that because 
the cops who were directly involved, some of them are dead or, yeah. you know, they've lost their marbles yeah. and, you know, it's really hard to reconstruct that. But the police now and, you know, for many years have wanted to charge Chris Dawson with murder and other offences, including, you know, sexual abuse of... Yeah, I guess all that stuff is, yeah, all that stuff is sitting there as well. Yeah, but the, what's held them back is um, the office of the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, has consistently said that there was insufficient evidence to meet their test to charge for murder. Now, there's a stronger brief of evidence. You know, I think the DPP is probably, if they apply all their usual principles, likely to agree that a prosecution uh, should proceed. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah, but in saying that, though, now that this is probably one of the most popular podcasts of the year, do you think you'd be able to get a jury that hasn't listened to the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I do. I think that uh, they would just select jurors carefully and ask them, have you listened to the teacher's pet? Um, and if you haven't, it's available on all good platforms. And, yeah. um, but um, no, they would select carefully and yeah. and find the jur- jurors who hadn't. And then there's also the option of a um, judge alone trial. Yeah. And I'm sure there'd be some judges who hadn't listened to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't subscribe or buy the theory that, you know, um, because of a journalistic investigation, someone can't get a fair trial. You know, I think defence lawyers like to run around and, you know, trot that argument out um, willy-nilly, but usually it doesn't fly. And the High Court has consistently ruled that, you know, a jury that has been properly instructed can certainly, in a case of great prominence, deliver yeah. justice and be fair. Now, just quickly, before we kind of move on to, um, you know, some of the other stuff you've done in your career, what is happening with the house? You know, mm. who owns it now? Surely they must know how many people are waiting for them to just to open up their property. To Yeah. Yeah, this is a beautiful property um, in Gilwinga Drive, Bayview. And I was only up there the other day. Chris and Lynn built the house up there and, you know, it's worth two and a half million dollars plus and uh, the current owners have only been there a year and it was going to be their retirement home so and they've they've got people who have listened to the podcast and have become pretty obsessed with the case like the level of interest from people who never knew um, Lynn and Chris people you know who who never um, been to baby before and now they're doing drive-bys you know the house and um and so the owners, I think, you know, have been watching this and I've felt a lot of pity for them. Um, I've talked to them. You know, they'll probably see police up there digging yeah. on in areas of that property that, you know, weren't dug properly in the past. And that might uh, yield um, further evidence. There was a dig in 2000 which recovered uh, a cardigan. Lynn's yeah. um, neighbour, Julie Andrew, said that uh, that was Lynn's favourite pink cardigan, and it had multiple cut marks in it, consistent with stabbing. Um, according to Bob Gibbs, who was the scientific officer on that dig, and he told me that that dig concluded prematurely um, for uh, budgetary reasons. Right, and you know he said, 
I hadn't heard this phrase for ages. He said, oh, we were spewing, mate. We were spewing. Um, And he said um, he thought it was possible that they'd missed Lynn Dawson's remains by just a few feet. You know, and just a few thousand dollars, probably as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, crazy stuff like that. And you know, I think people hearing the episodes, and certainly for me, you know, um, discovering these things, you're left shaking your head sometimes at how um, authorities conduct investigations um, or don't. And I, I know there are many fantastic examples of great detective work, great policing, you know great prosecuting and I don't want to you know generalize but in this case there's just been a litany of failure and mm. disaster incompetence um, lack of disclosure um, I mean the you know the current DPP Lloyd Babb you know um, who's been in that job since 2011 he he was in the football team at Asquith Boys College you know that was coached by Chris and Paul and he didn't think that that was something he needed to disclose yeah. to Lynn Dawson's family and yeah. it came out in the podcast and you know they were just shattered I mean they couldn't yeah. believe it and it's not suggesting that Lloyd Babb has done anything untoward that's mm. no, not where I'm going at all it's you just, know it's, it's a direct link, but, but, yeah. but, but, but you got you got to disclose that yeah. sort of stuff to ensure that um, people you know have confidence in the system yeah, yeah. particularly when that when Lynn's family have been in my view, treated so badly, you know, let down at every turn. Yeah. Well, if you look up and down the charts now, on sort of more often than not, most of the podcasts which are up the top are, are true crime ones. And then you've got on Stan and, and Netflix and all of those ones, all the shows that you often see up the top there are crime-related. It's Did almost you, a renaissance yeah. um, that I guess you've timed with as well it's kind of like a, you've been working on this forever and you've um, just it, you're in a climate now where everyone wants to know about these yeah. kind of things do you find do you think that's kind of helped the uh, the interest or oh yeah I uh, first wrote about Lynn Dawson 17 years ago so it was early 2001 and I was then um, working as a features writer for the Korea Mail in Brisbane and the first inquest was on and I started reading some newspaper articles about you know, the evidence coming out in that inquest and I thought it was just fascinating and I mm-hmm. um, persuaded the boss to let me fly to Sydney, meet the cops who were involved in it and you know, interview some members of Lynn's family and then I read parts of the police brief or most of it in one of the police stations up there on the northern beaches and you know, I wrote a big piece about it and then you know, I always thought that I would revisit the case one day. I kept everything um, from the case in a you know in a carton in the roof of my carport at home in Brisbane and uh, late last year late 2017 when I was keen to do a podcast but didn't really know how you you do a podcast series and I uh, my father had, had died and I was looking for some new challenge you know he was always a great mentor and and uh, you know, kept me um, grounded and focused and so on. Was he media? Was he- no, he was um, a yeah, military pilot. Right. Yeah. You know, he sailed and, you know, he was quite brilliant. And, but he he, um, he passed away and, and so this idea, I had this idea that I would um, revisit the Lynn Dawson case and try and reinvestigate it and maybe find new evidence that could solve it because, 
you know, I have to be honest, I didn't um, start investigating this case with a completely, you know, 50-50 view as to whether or not Chris Dawson might have been innocent. Yeah. I was, if I found evidence suggesting that he was innocent, that would have been really prominent. Mm. But I agreed with the two coroners yeah, right. who yeah. said that he should be prosecuted for murder. And I believe that based on the evidence I'd read all those years ago and the contact that I'd had over the years with Lynn's sister, uh, Pat. Yeah, so when, when that idea started to sort of take hold, I, I was really keen to launch and, and get into it. And yeah. you know, I was really fortunate that Lynn's family remembered me. You know, they'd kept, yeah. kept the article all those years and trusted me to sort of tell it. But they didn't know what a podcast was, and yeah. I didn't know how to make one. And that funny little app on my iPhone, you know, when I wanted to listen to something interesting, I'd Google, yeah. you know, BBC History Podcast rather than yeah, yeah, go, to, yeah. go to the app. So... Yeah. It's been a bit of an accidental uh, success. Perfect yeah. medium for it. Mm. Um, now, can you just tell us, you kind of grew up, like you said, early 80s, you were finishing school down mm. there in the Gold Coast. That was a big time for journalists as well um, in Queensland. You know, you had uh, Moonlight State. You had, uh, you know, in the 80s anyway, you had journalists were doing a lot more work than than police were um, yeah. in, in exposing certain kind of uh, elements. And there was a government brought down pretty much around the work of journalists is it was that kind of got into your head were you inspired by the moonlight state kind of stuff that was happening there sir joe fitzgerald inquiry yeah i I was um and you know it was a remarkable time i um yeah i I love a punt um and always have so i started going to the races when i was probably 14 15 mate of mine um wanted to be a jockey and so he he got an apprenticeship then and they used to help muck out stables and so you know one thing led to another and when I was still at high school we'd be back in the favourite and then doubling down you know um, after jumping the fence at the Gold Coast races and that was unlawful you know we were underage and then you know in Cavill Avenue there was an illegal casino and it had free drinks, yeah. you know, obviously to <laughs> encourage gambling. So, you know, I, I would be glad mum and dad aren't around to hear this, but I would be 16, 17 and be uh, playing blackjack and enjoying, you know, bourbon and coke for right. free. White shoes on. Yeah, yeah, in this dodgy little casino above the gelati bar in <laughs> Cavill Ave. And, and then I became um, a copy boy straight out of high school at the Gold Coast Bulletin. And... Chris Masters, um, I was initially in sport, but then Chris Masters started his um, um, work around the same time as Phil Dickey from the Courier Mail was doing his work. And, you know, there was this incredible focus on on police corruption. The Courier Mail played a big part in that. Played a really big part. And I was um, not at the Courier Mail until mid-1988. But because of those experiences with illegal casinos, and, and, and they must have been paying local cops uh, money um, uh, I, I, I probably bandwagoned a bit and ended up pissing off all my maids by doing a story on the illegal casino the the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah look it was a remarkable period and, and you know watching police officers at really high rank mm. go into the witness box mm. roll over yeah. You know, um, and tell all about, you know, the thousands of dollars mm. that they would receive in bribes all the way to 
the police commissioner, you know, who was Sir Terence Lewis. Yeah, they're all knighted. All those fellows were knighted. <laughs> and, you know, so one of the great um, expressions that sort of stood the test of time, because it's been 30 years, came out of um, Terry's mouth. Um, and it was used to describe, according to Jack Herbert, the amounts of money that he would receive. So that Jack Herbert was the bag man. Yeah. He was moving the money around yeah. from the cribs yeah. to the cops. That's business. right. Yeah. He was responsible for, for, for distributing the dough. And and the police commissioner, of course, would um, receive some of this dough. And and Terry you know, tried to take money in sort of smaller increments, but you know, regularly, according to Jack Herbert. And Terry's explanation to Jack Herbert um, if I remember this correctly, um, was um, little fish are sweet, and I just love that saying. <laughs> little fish are sweet, you know. It's it's a, when you're talking about graft and yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but it was an era of um, incredible journalism. You know, Chris Masters and and Phil Dickey were brilliant, and um, and I think it must have left a powerful. You know, impression mm. on many journalists, yeah. myself included. You know, wet behind the ears, very junior, but keen to emulate those journalists. And also, when you consider that the corruption, not just of the police force, but of the government in those years, had occurred when there were really good journalists working in Queensland, but somehow it had happened, I think it made or helped influence journalists such as myself to be more rugged, more robust, because you didn't want to have this legacy again. Like, yeah. you know, The protesters were the same. The protesters yeah. were going harder than anyone else in the country. The, yeah. the music was all... It was Everyone was kind of yeah. indirectly kind of um, ramped up, weren't they? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. It, um, and it almost is like you were almost a bit too good at your job because then they moved you uh, <laughs> to the UK. Yeah, I... I uh, uh, <laughs> out of everyone's hair down there in the in the southeast. <laughs> yeah, I was um, 22 and uh, it was mid-89 and, and the editor of the Courier Mail said, how would you like to go and work in the London Bureau um, for, for News Limited? And I yeah. was, how old were you? 22. Oh. <laughs> and I'd never been overseas before. You know, <laughs> Stradbroke Island was about it. And um, well, look, I, I was born in the US. I was born in Texas, but I was yeah. a child, a very small child when I came back. And so, yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. And I thought I must have been, you know, pretty special to have got that gig. But I was told by a couple of the guys I became mates with in the London Bureau when it was a really big bureau that. Um, you know, I should get a grip that I was actually the cheapest because I had no right. family to take over. <laughs> <laughs> there were no, no big houses to sort of, you know, fund. Yeah. Um, a little flat in Clapham would do it. Yeah, you know? no, no um, school for yeah. kids. No, nothing like that. Oh, I didn't have to go business class. They could have strapped me to the wing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So um, talking to Michaela Whitbourne, mm. Fairfax investigative journalist, we're talking about you know, this shit quite often, if it's for her, she finds um, she, she's quite uh, ruthless with the stuff she's been doing. She doesn't really think about it affecting um, her life. That's part of the game. If, if you can get exposed yeah. by journalists, then you, you lose kind of thing. That's That was her thinking. I think McClymont's a bit the same. Um, Chris Masters, I know, during all that investigation was, you know, at risk. And there was 
talk of intercepts of you know underage kids being put in hotel rooms to kind of stitch him up and that kind of stuff. Have you ever seen people playing dirty with the stuff you've been chasing? Yeah, yeah, I've uh, I've had um, you know some um, nasty threats, um, and I didn't pay much attention to the threats because I always figured that people who threaten weren't serious. The people who were serious, you wouldn't know about. You just yeah get a bullet yeah 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 um, open but, the door one day but then you know one night we did get the bullets um and so yeah it was um you know about uh, uh 16 years ago um on the job in queensland yeah my well we went on the job we'd, we'd been um my wife and i were at home in bed but i think we just watched late line and gone to bed it was a really windy night blowing a gale outside and I thought that a massive branch had fallen from one of the trees outside onto the carpal roof near our bedroom because I said oh Christ what was that and Ruth said oh there's glass all over me and um, just trying to compute what was going on so I went outside and the neighbours were outside and and they said "Um, the car's just sped off um, you know, there've been shots fired, and and uh, the glass that was over my wife Ruth was uh, the fragments from the hole in the the window above our heads, where the bullet had come through and then smashed into the the bathroom wall, and uh, another three bullets were fired. And one went through, you know, my my children's um, playroom. My kids were really young at that time. Another bullet, you know, went into the roof, and another one overhead somewhere, and. And suddenly, you know, it sort of brought it home. Well, yeah. you know, who's done that? Um, which story did they do it over? Yeah. Uh, what was that about? And we never got to the bottom of it. And the police, they had a task force um, um, for some weeks or months and uh, looked into lots of different angles and theories. And unfortunately, um, while I think there are probably three, you know, prime suspects based on the stories I was doing at that time there wasn't sufficient evidence for them to to charge any one person and um, it went unresolved but it was a really difficult period and it went on for a while and I think I was probably at a bit of a crossroads afterwards um, because I felt like I couldn't um, know whether it would happen again and yeah, you're know, not knowing what it was over that's yeah not very effective if they're just saying stop working altogether yeah yeah, yeah. Jesus, you've done a lot of different kind of stuff, you mm. know, from, from obviously from organised crime to um, Dr. Patel mm. was one that you kind of, and, and come to think of it, yeah. were probably behind uh, mm. bringing that to light. Uh, I know it was, it was well, in the news a lot about... You certainly got the Walkley for it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, were you the first to scratch the top on that? Yeah, I was, yeah. Right. And uh, Dr. Death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the nurses called him Dr. Death. Yeah, that was um, a remarkable yeah. yarn. And, you know, it had a long tail. But um, what happened was these nurses in Bundaberg were at their wits' end because they'd tried to complain to, you know, their doctor bosses and others about the new surgeon in charge at Bundaberg Base Hospital. And, and they weren't being heard. And they felt that the patients were being significantly harmed and sometimes dying as a result of you know his poor judgment um poor operation skills and so on and i went up there and uh i met um tony hoffman who was the senior nurse at the hospital 
and she invited some of her other colleagues over this secret meeting in her house in Bundaberg and um, you know it was after work so I said look I'll bring some food over and I went to this you know Indian restaurant where Dr Patel was one of his favorites and 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 I ordered you know you know half a dozen really good curries and took them over to to Tony's house and and I was just um, floored you know while we were sort of eating they were talking about what would what had been going on and you know they struck me as incredibly um sincere um credible consistent you know they weren't it wasn't personal it wasn't racist they were just really worried and they were in tears at times of describing what, what had gone on so right towards the end of the night when um one of the nurses made this comment she said he didn't become a bad surgeon overnight and I was like, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that, yeah. you know? And she said, well, he's always been a bad surgeon and he must have been a bad surgeon where he's previously practiced. And he, he was an American surgeon. And so I said, well, that, does that mean there might be kind of like a record of prior history, you know, bad outcomes, mishaps and so on? And she said, yes. So I went back to the motel just thinking, I bet you there's something there. I couldn't wait for the next morning to come so I could start, you know, digging into that. And I got a flight back to uh, to Brisbane from Bundaberg. It's not a long way to drive, but got into the office uh, at Bowen Hills. And this was in, in the days when, I know it seems ridiculous now, but journalists didn't immediately do a Google search in 2005 as soon as they heard something interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah like now it's like, yeah. you know. I better Google yeah, I met yeah. I met a girl in a bar, I'll Google it, you know. <laughs> on should? my phone, on the way. Yeah, you know? so. Uh, I went <laughs> um, if I took my laptop up it wouldn't have you know, yeah. probably didn't have that <laughs> capability get so went back to the office you know yeah. go to the desktop and and started um, using Google and then I found Dr. Patel's disciplinary history in um, this US state um, it was in both New York state as well as uh, it was that easy in Oregon and it was there it was online and this was after he'd been there two years he'd been hired as a director of surgery he'd got through all the checks and balances he'd lied his head off about his prior disciplinary history he'd been he'd been prevented from performing surgery in the US he had a shocking record and he'd got through all the hoops with the medical board of Queensland and all the bureaucrats had been telling me and the nurses, no, no, this is a witch hunt of a good doctor. And then suddenly we flush this out and away yeah. it goes. And I remember the headline, you know, why didn't they check? And we we, we um, splashed the paper that, that night and the next day and I wrote a feature as well. It was that simple. It was a yeah. It was a Google search. I mean, I would love to say there was this really deep, intense six-month investigation, yeah. but like, I, I thought I had to be upfront. Right. Yeah. Look, the right outcome was that he was discovered, and I think because people understood that it was a simple Google search yeah, yeah. that discovered this, it, well, the story became more powerful. That's you know? the time, right? Yeah. This, uh, but just tell us quickly, he wasn't. A phony. He was just an incredibly shit surgeon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, he may have had once good skills. Yeah, yeah. But he had fallen foul of authorities in the U.S. because of the outcomes from his surgery. A lot of people had but been he harmed. Had studied, right? He had yeah, studied yeah. He, yeah. He, he had studied um, in in India and in the U.S. and he'd been properly qualified as a surgeon. He just had 
it was not a good surgeon and it became worse. And the story took me to India. Mm. It took me to um, Portland, Oregon, where he worked before he came to Australia, as well as to uh, uh, New York, because there was a Royal Commission-style inquiry mm. that the Queensland government set up into it. Peter Beattie ordered that. And then uh, there was a huge amount of evidence of cover-ups in the whole hospital system through through that process. Um, once the lawyers began interrogating the bureaucrats and, and the doctors who had been become part of a system which was delivering outcomes that looked good for politicians' shiny press releases but were not good for yeah. um, patient care. There was you know, an ongoing sense of disgust that the system had been allowed to you know, become captured by politicians who were lying about the yeah. waiting lists, how long people would really wait for procedures, outcomes... And the Medical Board of Queensland, which was meant to be this uh, vetting process. Um, they had a few claims, didn't they? they? Remember there was a, about yeah. five years ago, was the Tahitian prince that, yeah. that launched yeah, the, the, oh, the, the money, money out, of the, out of the health department. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and, and, you know, every now and then you'll find someone on the most wanted turns up in the back of Weeper working in the medical for Queensland Health. It's yeah. Do you find people can manipulate bureaucracy? Yeah. Well, I think um, people can certainly manipulate bureaucracy because often bureaucracy is just completely inept. Yeah. And one of the lessons for me as a journalist that I keep relearning is that, you know, you should always assume that the bureaucrats have completely stuffed things up. (laughs) And don't think that logic necessarily is the you know driving kind of force in a bureaucracy assume the opposite you'll usually be kind of vindicated that's some yeah. terrible generalization yeah. it's just been in my experience yeah it happens too many times yeah right well just one thing we should ask you before we all go is there's probably millions of people around the world now who are wondering what's the next project for the bloke who brought yeah. them teacher's pet Cat Society murders. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, there have been um, some really good ideas um, raised by other people you know, that I think could be compelling. I haven't landed on it yet. I want to actually spend quite a bit more time on the teacher's pet because sure. I, I think yeah. there's um, more there and I don't want to get distracted uh, before I tie that one up. But I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate in journalism because mm. some of the, the really exciting stories that uh, have come my way you know, have made a big difference and have been fascinating for people. And I think that's been one of the great highs of this craft, you know. <laughs> it's just a, just a blessing. Just, you know, the teacher's pet came when I was sort of at a bit of a crossroads in terms of working out what yeah. I was going to do in journalism or whether I was going to try and do something completely different for a while after um, my dad passed to... Wonderful job to have. I'm not great at sort of you know working in an office and <laughs> coming in every day at a certain time, but I'll put in longer hours than yeah. just about anyone. And, and they might be at a coffee a shop. 14, and, yeah, series yeah. <laughs> seventy million downloads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just, just, just as we wrap, mm. where are Chris and Paul right now? And is that kind of what piqued your interest? Because I heard they were up where you're from. Yeah, they uh, they are. They're at um, a very aptly named suburb called Runaway Bay, uh, which is on the Gold Coast. And uh, Chris usually lives at Coolum on the Sunshine Coast, south of Noosa, near Clive Palmer's Dinosaur Park. But uh, lately he's been spending a lot more time near his brother Paul. I think that 
they should be worried. The many very serious allegations levelled against them, um, police will at least be laying charges over the uh, sexual assaults that they're accused of perpetrating. But for Chris, you know, the murder would be a really serious worry. And I believe that it's more likely than not that he would be charged um, after 36 years, which would be an incredible outcome. But it will give him a chance to finally quit himself if he's innocent as he asserts and he should enjoy you know under our legal system you know the benefit of presumption of innocence the problem for him though is that these two inquests run by judicial officers who are magistrates have led to him having a presumption of guilt Mm. so he's in this really weird place and uh, i think a trial before jurors or if They've all listened to the podcast, yeah. which I think is really unlikely, but, <laughs> but if they have to pick up on what you guys were saying before, you know, before a judge alone would be a good way to finally end this nightmare yeah. for Lynn Dawson's family and friends and for Chris and Paul Dawson's families and friends and for them. Yeah, right. Mm. Well, we, we look forward to seeing what happens there. And, and it sounds like you were the perfect person for it because you were just young enough to remember it happening. And, but not yet old enough to have been part of the system that had already failed to cover it anyway. Yeah. So um, let's just see if the if the new new era of uh, judicial system is uh, is is onto it. Great. All right. Thanks for coming up uh, to the Queensland Desert, mate. It's been uh, it's been an honour to have you up here. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Let's have a beer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.